Good evening and welcome to another edition of the show here on WNHH 103.5 FM, newhavenindependent.org. My name is Michelle Turner and today's show is focusing on an event given by the New Haven Metropolitan Chapter of 100 National, the National Organization of 100 Black Women. And it is called Let Her Learn, Stop the School Pushout of Girls. And we'll get a little bit more into what that title actually means momentarily. On the phone with me, and I am fortunate enough to have Ms. or Mrs. Valencia Goodrich, and she is the president of the New Haven Metropolitan Chapter and from the National Women's Law Center in Washington, D.C., a nonprofit organization that is about the advocacy of justice and fairness for women and girls. Nia Evans, the campaign organizer of Let Her Learn, and Kayla Patrick, researcher and policy expert. And I welcome you all to the show, and thank you so much for being here today. This is wonderful. This is absolutely wonderful. So, and so why this issue? Why do you feel this is one that your organization needs to get behind? Well, we know what we did was we were very, very fortunate in partnership with the National Women's Law Center was to look at the data. The data share shows that um, black girls in Connecticut are 5.8 times more likely than white girls to be suspended. And that's not because they're misbehaving. A lot of times it just has to do with policies um, and stereotypes. And it's important that we make certain, again, that all of our, our students have opportunities um, to learn and to do their best and not be, because of stereotypes and biases being pushed out of a school. So for the coalition, we, we talked about it. One of the national initiatives is that we focus on the well-being and STEAM and so on and so forth and having a healthy, well-rounded education for black and brown girls. And part of this initiative helps shed light and bring the conversation to our community with the professionals that are coming, the experts that are coming, who can share the data and, and do the backstory and the why and how do we move forward. Um, so that, that, that's, that's at the forefront of where we stand as far as coalition um, sisters. So, Nia, want to ask you, how did it come about that this, what's the data look like? How did it come about that this piece of data or that this issue became something that the Women's Law Center became focused on? That's a great question. So Let Her Learn is a campaign that we created about a year and a half ago to end the school push out of black girls. And we created it because we realized through research, um, through conversations with students, parents, educators, school leaders, that race and gender are playing a huge role in how students are punished in school. Um, you know, as Valencia said, stereotypes and bias are really contributing to black girls being punished 
punished more harshly than their peers. And they're being punished for minor and sometimes really non-existent offenses, things Such like as... dress code, hair code violations, uh-huh. um, attitude violations. We've seen some girls, black girls in particular, we've seen them punished for how they respond to harassment in school, or maybe they're struggling with something and they have a lot of trauma and are acting out in school because of it, and rather than receiving support, they're being punished for it. So all of these things really make school an unwelcome place for students. And what we want to do is to create safer, more inclusive schools for girls. And the Let Her Learn campaign is really working, as Alonsia said, to educate the public on these issues and provide tools to communities, but also schools for them to take action. And I'm going to pass it to Kayla Patrick, who can really give us um, a better picture of what the data looks like. Okay. Great. Thank you, Nia. Um, I'll just say a couple of data points. So uh, the one thing people always ask why we're talking about girls, because boys are also pushed out of school, which is completely true. But we found that girls are often left out of the conversation and we weren't talking about the push out that affects black girls and native girls um, disproportionately. So nationally, black girls are five and a half times more likely than their white peers to be suspended from school. Mm -hmm. And in Connecticut specifically, um, like Valencia said, it's 5.8 times more likely than their white peers to be suspended from school. And so what we do know is that when girls aren't in school, they're not learning. And so we want to provide opportunities for them to stay in school so they can be successful in the future. So what do you see as the, the caveat or the, the, the challenge in this? In other words, what is it that's getting black girls put out of school, black girls, brown girls, native girls? What's getting them put out of school? So one of the things that we found in our Let Her Learn research where we um, surveyed over a thousand girls across the country is that black girls are more likely than any other girl, um, any other girl of any other race to see themselves as leaders. And what they're getting pushed out of school for are things like willful defiance. Um, and, you know, can you define that? So, you know, I can't because it's so ambiguous. I can't Ah. say exactly what that is. And that's part of the problem. Okay. But it's just something like not following directions or not being, um, not doing what the teacher tells you to do. Um, and so things like that are really what the ambiguous category is really what pushes specifically, um, black girls out of school. And so these are characteristics that we would normally say those are leadership qualities, like Mm -hmm. um, speaking up for themselves and having a voice, things that we should celebrate. Um, We often do not celebrate it in the classroom. So across the country, is this being recognized as a phenomena or are people still sort of dismissing it as more of a disciplinary issue? I think we've seen both sides of it. Um, Mm -hmm. I think more people are talking about it and it's wonderful. Um, But I've heard people, you know, um, brush it off as something that only happens in low poverty districts, which is not true. Um, Race is the biggest predictor of being suspended from school. And that's in all schools, not just um, schools in urban areas or low income areas. It's also suburban schools and high income schools. So, what are we what are we seeing? I guess my question is, 
in this research, is it high school? Is it junior high school? What's the age range? So that's also a wonderful question. And I'm so glad you asked because honestly, it's all ages. Um, preschool girls are more likely to be really? Um Yes. We're, so there's a, so a lot of even private preschools are um, expelling and suspending kids for um, miscellaneous things like not showing up on time and, um, really, they can suspend and expel students for anything. Right. Um, so there's a big disproportion in the rate that um, preschool girls are being suspended. And it continues on through elementary, middle, and high school. Yeah. This, I can just jump in and give you a specific sure. figure that Kayla has actually um, calculated. And it's that black girls are only 20% of the preschool population, but they're 54% of preschool suspensions. Wow. I've never heard that. And preschool is yeah, what? Two from... to four, four to six, or two, at, at least two to five, right? Yeah, I think it's yeah. three to five probably. And this is, this is data from the Department of Education and what we see. I mean, suspension, even utilizing suspension in preschool when, when children are very, very young and their behavioral you know, right. they're learning how to behave in school. They're really, they're really learning how to um, engage, be friends, right. treat each other respectfully. Right. And we're seeing that stereotypes and bias, and again, to Kayla's point, ambiguous policies are really contributing to black girls being criminalized from a very, very early age and being pushed out of school. Now, when you say, follow up. Uh, go ahead, go okay. ahead. I just want to follow up and, and say that these students don't understand what it means to be suspended. So that's the problem. They're not learning anything because you send them home. They don't understand why they can't go to school the next day. And so it's a lose-lose situation, right? They don't understand that they need to change their behavior if that is in case something that needs mm -hmm. to happen. And they're not being taught how to behave better in the classroom. Okay. So my question is with this, is it because you have, I guess my, well, I have two questions. Is it because you have teachers who don't understand the, the student, i.e., is it a cultural bias? Or, or is it something where behaviors just aren't dealt with? There is a zero tolerance for specific behaviors. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. So what we're really seeing is both. So... On the piece of, you know, teachers, we've seen that, you know, schools that have a majority of teachers of color and maybe students of color, we still see this type of unfair, harsh discipline happening. Mm -hmm. um, and, and to your second question of, you know, whether... Sorry, I it's think cultural. The, is it cultural or is it uh, is it uh, race? Is yeah, there, I in other words, is, you know, when when you're when you're starting to talk about uh, culture, behavior, race, which one is it that seems to pop up the most? And are these teachers of color? Are they other women? Are they uh, not of color? Yeah, so what we're generally seeing is that um, 
most teachers don't know how to deal with some of these behaviors in the classroom. And and let me say that this isn't, um, school pushout is not the fault of teachers. What we are often seeing is that teachers don't have the support that they need in the classroom mm. to be able to deal with some behavior. With, with certain behaviors. Um, so to Kayla's point about willful defiance, if you have a student in the classroom who is being disruptive in a certain sense, um, you know, teachers should have resources to deal with that. And sometimes the resource looks like a counselor because if a student is being, if a student is acting out as being disruptive, the solution isn't to turn that student away from the school building. There's something happening. There needs mm-hmm. to be a conversation. And mm-hmm. obviously educators have a lot of, they're balancing a lot of priorities and they're responsible for quite a bit. So teachers need to have support in, in the school. Sometimes that looks like counselors, Sometimes that looks like bias training to make sure that they are aware of some of the biases because we all have them, but that they are okay. aware of the biases that they hold to make sure that they're not creating, um, you know, unsupportive environments. Okay. But it really, what we do see is that, sadly, this this is a phenomenon that happens with, when there are teachers of color in the room and when there are white teachers in the room, that this is really um, something that is happening across the board. and the solution really looks like support for both student and teacher. Yeah, because I was going to say, I think that's the gap. When I'm listening to you, and in my experience, I worked in two different inner city high schools last year. And it seems that is the real issue. There has to be some kind of support, not only for the student, but for the teacher. Because... A lot of times what happens is when a student is disruptive, not only does it disrupt the class, but it enables other students to have uh, not so, uh, how can you say, their behavior also starts to erode or they join in. So consequently, not having that support, because now you have not only one student who's acting up, you have three students. So now you have to stop what you're doing. You have to take those students either out or you have to call a principal or you have to call an administrator or you have to call security. And then when that happens, that's a whole nother level. And then the kid comes back and there's one or two things that happens. Either they continue the disruptive behavior or they're angry. They're still angry. For whatever reason. And so it sounds like the counseling or the support, not only again for teachers, but for students, is very important in trying to slow this tide. Yeah, so I think those are, you made a bunch of really good points. I think one thing that I like to always bring up is that a lot of this behavior isn't really disruptive to a whole classroom, right? So, um, and Whenever our students are going through lots of things, just mm-hmm. like adults, they are. We um, in our survey found that many girls have, are suffering from symptoms related to PTSD, and so when mm-hmm. once you go through the school doors, you don't drop all of that at the school doors. Correct. So many girls have said, "We just want someone to ask us how we're doing." Mm-hmm. Something just as simple as that um, can change, you know, the di- direction of the rest of the day. If teachers say, "How are you doing?" Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything I can help you with? 
and giving them the space to work through their issues if that's what they need or giving them access to a counselor is very helpful. But we really like to highlight that a lot of the behavior is not violent. It's not disruptive. Many girls are being suspended for things like dress code violations. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a part of it. One, yeah, that's a part of it. In Connecticut, in Connecticut last year on one day of school, a high school suspended over a hundred kids for a dress code violation. Mm-hmm. And so all of those kids weren't learning that day, um, which is a real problem um, and things that we need to address moving forward. So how do you address it? What's the, where do we go from here? So to speak. That's a wonderful question. And there's lots of things that we can do by one of that. One of those things is ending um, the use of suspending kids for dress code violations. Mm-hmm. Um giving, replacing school resource officers or people acting as police with counselors. Um, We found that the more students of color there are in a particular school, the more likely they are to have a school resource officer. And as a result, black girls specifically are funneled right into the, what is commonly known as the school to prison pipeline. So Mm -hmm. for example, black girls are 15% of the enrollment in school um, in this country, but over 37% of the girls who are arrested at school. Well, and so me... that's like a huge... Go ahead, go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say that that's a huge um, disparity, and, mm-hmm. and they are also 28% of the girls who are referred to law enforcement. So even if they're not arrested, um, that means that someone is calling the police into a classroom to deal with something that in the past the teacher would have been able to um, manage and deal with. Let me ask you one more question, Kayla, and then I'm going to go to Nia. So is there anything in your data or in the data that shows how in-school suspension works or is it working? So I'm also glad that you asked that question. There are huge disparities in in in-school suspensions as well. Um, So it's not just out-of-school suspensions, but what we found is that in-school suspensions are equally as detrimental to students and students learning, right? So some kids are just put in a room all day, um, sometimes for multiple days at a time with worksheets or just staring at the wall, honestly. They have no access to any academic um, um, activity or Mm -hmm. learning that they would if they were staying in the classroom. So that's a real problem. What we really want to do is make sure that girls are learning and have access to quality teachers. So Nia... What is the campaign built on and how is it moving forward? Yeah, so simple answer, the campaign is built on action. So um, all of of these issues that we're talking about, there are already communities across the country who have been championing these things. And those champions include students, parents, um, teachers, principals. We've seen you know, really, really innovative and exciting um, leadership and advocacy on these issues led by the people who really, really have, who are closest to this issue and have the solutions that they need. So Mm -hmm. the campaign, the Let Her Learn campaign is grounded on supporting those people, on providing um, resources, be it data, specific data about what is happening in specific communities, We can provide policy expertise because, as we said, one of the problems is, 
you know, ambiguous policies that have a, or not even ambiguous, just sometimes they're policies that just have a disproportionate impact on black girls. Um, we can really provide that research. We can provide that policy expertise to make sure that schools are creating and revising policies to make sure that they're equitable and treat students fairly. Um, and we can also help communities gather around these issues. So, you know, we met Valencia and the coalition family about a year and a half ago, and we've been in conversation about this mm -hmm. since then. We've really um, kept the phone lines open, partnered um, in a lot of different ways to make sure that we are, we are helping people who want to take action on these issues, making sure that they have all the tools and the research and the policies that they need to go to maybe it's going to their school, maybe it's going to the legislature, maybe mm -hmm. it's going to the governor's mansion, but to go to the people who who have the authority to really implement some of these changes. But from a campaign perspective, I believe that the change starts with the people. And what we're trying to do with this campaign is to give the people, the communities, the leaders, all of the support that they they require to really make a change and make schools safer and more inclusive for black girls. So where are you working out of? So we are based in Washington, DC, but we have partners across the country who are working on these issues. And sometimes um, that looks like another advocacy organization who we're partnering with to um, share resources with different communities. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that looks like um, you know, attending conferences and summits and panels. And we've done a lot of trainings in particular of teachers, of superintendents. Um, we're about to go and train school board leaders. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have done a lot of work to give people um, not just information, because people, I think, know quite a bit. It's giving them the space and time to process this issue and to problem solve together. So um, we've done that everywhere. We've done that in Delaware with Another chapter of the coalition, we've done that in New Orleans with um, superintendent leaders. We've done that. Um, we've done that in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. We've done that in Boston with the National Education Association. We've really um, traveled the country having these conversations, training people, supporting them, listening, learning how we can be helpful. And, you know, we're excited because we communities are the agents of change that that have always gotten the job done. And I think that this event is going to be incredible for many reasons, but also it's going to give the community space and time to solve this problem. All right. Valencia, you wanted to jump in here, I believe. Hello. All right. Well, my question to you, Nia and Kayla, when you have this data and you're you're going across the country and you're training people and you're giving advice and you're helping write policy. Have you ever gotten any pushback from the state departments of education, the federal? How's the how's the federal department of education receiving and perceiving the work that you're doing? So the, that's a great question. We 
keep saying that because Lord, all of these are really, really good questions. <laughs> well, um, thank you. So, so I think I can say just plainly that the current secretary of education is not a champion um, for black girls and is not, has made it clear that she is not dedicated to upholding and protecting the civil rights of students of color generally. Mm. Um, and wow. this issue of discipline, exclusionary discipline. So, and by exclusionary, I mean suspensions, expulsions, mm-hmm. waste arrest, anything that really removes students from the classroom and takes them away from learning. Um, she not only has made it clear that she's not going to champion this and work to ensure that more students are treated fairly in school, she has indicated that she might be um, threatening key federal guidance that encourages schools to address racial disparities in discipline. And, oh and so how do you... How do you respond to that? <laughs> I mean, with the work that you're doing, I'm sure that you, while you're encouraged by the communities that you work in to know that the federal government is not favoring what you're doing, how do you protect yourselves in this type of environment? Uh, that's a really good question, but I just want to say first and foremost that I'm hopeful, and I'm hopeful because school districts and states have really, you know, despite which, what is being said at the federal level, they've mm-hmm. taken the lead to really examine um, their policies, um, and and we haven't seen a state fully go um, to the extent that they could, but some, of, uh, some states are doing good work, like Connecticut, who's started to address um, some of their discipline issues. Um, so has Illinois, um, California has made it so um, very young kids cannot be suspended for willful defiance, which is great, but we would like to, them to do a little bit more, which is mm-hmm. make it so all students can't be suspended for willful defiance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I'm hopeful because we still have the power, and by we, I mean the people um, through having conversations and through advocating for ourselves by going to board meetings, by talking to principals, mm-hmm. um, writing letters to the people who represent us, whether it be at the state level or elsewhere, I think um, we can really protect ourselves from what's happening here in Washington, D.C. So, Michelle, go ahead, Valencia. I, I'm, I apologize. I was on mute when I was trying to share with you. Oh. One of the things I was going to, to say is that we as communities, we have the power to turn these numbers around. And when Kayla mentioned um, that we met a year and a half ago or a year ago, we have, she's right, we have been in, just to echo that, we've been in dialogue, but it started with a slow process because we had to review the data mm-hmm. and look at where we are and where we want to go. Um, we were very, very fortunate because the National Women's Law Center sent us the toolkit. So we shared that with some membership and we broke into um, teams and our public policy chairwoman who was led by Gwendolyn Brantley and their entire team, including Agnes Wilson, they were able to gather data specific for the state of Connecticut. Mm-hmm. So although we have been in dialogue and trying to, to figure out how do we effectively communicate to affect change in our community, it started with reviewing the data to see where we are. And then having the conversation is the next step. And then, and then we'll take it to the state level based on the, the conversation with the community decides to do. 
So again, I believe that the communities have power. I think on the, the federal level, yes, there are changes coming down, but we can exercise our vote um, in, in 2018 and also in 2020 to make the change that we want to have in our communities. So, Valencia, talk a little bit about what people can expect on Monday, I believe it is, correct? Yes. On Monday the 19th, we are very, very excited, first of all, to be collaborating with these two amazing, dynamic women. But in addition to that, um, both Mia and Kayla are the keynote speakers. And uh, after their, their presentation, we will have a panel discussion. The panel discussion includes a very, very distinguished panel. We have our state um, senator, Marilyn Moore, um, Dr. Superintendent of the Bridgeport School System, Dr. Alessa Johnson. We have Ms. Denise Clemens, Superintendent of the Torrington School System. Ms. Charmaine Johnson, who's the principal of the Greenwich School System. Mm-hmm. Um, Gemma Lumpkin, Joseph Lumpkin, who is representing the New Haven Public Schools. Mr. Leon Smith, who is a part of the Juvenile Justice Review Board. And Mr. John Ramos, who's a guidance counselor with Bridgeport Public Schools. So the event will start at 5. We will have light refreshments, 5.30, excuse me. We suggest strongly that you go to our website to pre-register um, because seating is limited. I believe the place holds about 150 people, and we have close to, I think, about 90 people who have already pre-registered. Mm. The free event, free to the community, it will be held at the University of Bridgeport, the Little Field Theater of Arnold. Bernard Center on 84 Irison Avenue in Bridgeport. Um, to register, we have a link, which is a um, an Eventbrite link, which is ncbwlettherlearneventbrite.com. So that's a very, very easy link to remember. If not, you can go to our ncbwct.org website and find that link. Um, so again, it's going to be more of a conversation in order to um, develop a pathway for action and moving forward. So what should we expect in Connecticut, ladies? What is it that you hope to see happen in our state? We're going to give that that question to Valencia and we can totally back it up. But I think, as we said, it starts with the community. So it, it's based on what the community prioritizes and wants to see. Mm-hmm. That's correct. So what we would like to happen, and we've talked about this, uh, one of the things on the national level, before we bring anything to, the, to uh, the, the community, it has to be vetted in terms of what is the end game or the action, the end result. The end result is not only to create a conversation, and the reason we have Senator Moore at the, at the table is because we'd like to talk to her and, and craft some type of legislation in order to make certain that schools are safer, they're more inclusive for our girls, we're creating a space for learning. Mm-hmm. And, and also to, to create a space that supports both not only administrators, but, the, but, the, but the, um, the students as well, in order to keep them in school. Because one of the things that was raised, I believe Michelle, you mentioned this, which is very, very true, is the fact that when they're not in school, they're not learning. And you increase the possibility of them being, falling into that pipeline, that cradle to prison pipeline, instead of being on a cradle to success pipeline, which is what we want for all of our children. So, again, our, our goal is to, A, create the conversation, share the data, and, B, work towards uh, more, of a, more of a safer, inclusive school and developing an action plan to have that done in our community. 
so Valencia, I guess the question becomes, what is the next step once this forum is held on Monday? Is it based on the outcomes? Are you going to turn to the community? community? We are, but we are in partnership with the um, National Women's Law Firm. The great thing is we don't need to reinvent the wheel, which is awesome. They have um, agreed to work with us in terms of moving it to the next level. So now that we create an awareness and have the conversation, Mm -hmm. then what we need to do is sit down with our legislators and craft some change that will make a you know, significant impact. Part of it is we could, we could talk it and leave it and drop the ball here, but we're looking at this as just the beginning, and we're only on stage three. We will disseminate um, toolkits, uh, which we, we received from the National Women's Law Center, and that toolkit will also um, be passed out in Spanish and in English in order to give the community more information. But the next step, you, this is not the end of it. We will have more forms probably, hopefully, in the fall of uh, 2018, um, bringing the same stakeholders to the table on wh- how we're going to move it forward to the next level. So that's the next step. Yeah, just this is me. Yeah, just to um, just to build off of that, I think, as we said before, that initiatives are always strongest when they have a real coalition of folks who have different perspectives. Um, behind a certain either policy or push. And I think that after this this community conversation, there will probably be another conversation very soon thereafter to decide, you know, what priorities um, should be moving towards legislators. So, mm-hmm. And I think it's exciting because this event will include parents. It'll include hopefully students. We'll have policymakers, school leaders, teachers, um, there's a really, I think, robust and exciting group of people who, who all have different experiences and who bring their unique perspective to the table. And I think that, that is how change happens when you have that, that cross-section of people who can bring their, their expertise to the table. And I'm excited to see how the law center can be helpful in, in pushing those policies forward. Valencia, once again, can you please... Yeah. Talk about where the event is, the time, and how folks can register. Okay, great. The event will be held on Monday, March 19th, from 5.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. at the University of Bridgeport, the Little Theater at the Arnold Bernard Center. And that's located on 84 Ironston Avenue, some say Ironston Avenue, mm-hmm. um, Bridgeport, Connecticut. We strongly suggest that you pre-register to secure your seat at uh, www, oh no, http uh, slash slash ncbwletforlearn.eventbrite.com. Um, again, the event is free. We are in partnership with the Connecticut Commission on Equality, Equity, and opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the committee did an awesome job in, in gaining partners and setting up the panel. But um, yes, that's where it's being held. And um, we thank you very, very much, uh, Michelle, for allowing us to bring this to your listeners and to shed light on this, this wonderful, wonderful um, forum that we're having for the community. And uh, we invite your listeners to join us. Indeed. So 
I want to thank Nia Evans. She is the campaign organizer and Kayla Patrick, researcher and policy expert who did not like my word disruptive. <laughs> but that's okay. That's okay, Kayla. I, I see you. I understand. I know where you're coming from. But thank you so much. They are we, both. We so appreciate you lifting up this issue. And, <laughs> you know, I think the, the grounding principles and values of this forum are that all students deserve to learn. And, mm, and that's why we named our initiative Let Her Learn, because even if a student has a problem, it does need to be addressed. And the solution isn't to remove them, it's to support them. Absolutely. I, I fully agree with you. And these wonderful women are part of the National Women's Law Center, a D.C. nonprofit, of course, based in Washington, D.C. I thank you so much for giving your time and energy to the show this evening. Valencia Goodrich, as always, thank you so much for considering us to be the vehicle to deliver your message. And this has been the show on 103.5 FM, WNHH, newhavenindependent.org. It streams. So just because you're not in New Haven doesn't mean you can't listen. So you can always go to newhavenindependent.org and listen live or Facebook Live, the New Haven Independent Facebook page, or you can listen to the show tomorrow at 10 a.m. And then it airs a repeat performance at 6 p.m. This has been the show. I'm Michelle Turner. Thanks so much for listening. Excuse me, Dougie Fresh. Yes! Have you ever seen a show with fellas on the mic with one minute rhymes that don't come out right? They bite. They never write. That's not polite. Am I lying? No, you're quite right. Well, tonight, on this very mic, you're about to hear, we swear, the best star rappers of the year. So, so, cheerio, yell, scream, bravo. Also, if you didn't know, this is called the show.